You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Episode 3 of the RSA Conference podcast. This is Britta Glade. I'm Director of Content and Curation for RSA Conference. And as always, I am happily joined today by my most favorite partner in crime, Hugh Thompson, RSA Conference Program Committee Chair. Hello, Britta, and welcome, everybody, to this third podcast. Really excited about our guest today. So we're going to be talking about technology and joined by two rock stars who come to us with very different backgrounds and perspectives. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And Ben, let me let me turn uh, turn to you first. Can you please give our listeners just a little bit of background overview and and what your path's been in security? Sure. Uh, today I run HBF Labs, which is a startup studio in San Francisco. But for 17 of the last 20 years, I was CTO and co-founder of a company called Cryptography Research, and our major focus was helping protect high-risk systems, usually by building hardware, and usually things that were in a consumer's hands. So we did everything from mobile phones to payment devices to uh, pay TV boxes to medical devices. Yeah, fantastic. And we're also joined by Ed Amoroso. Ed, can you give us a little bit of background? I'd be happy to, Hugh. So um, right now I run a consulting business called Tag Cyber. We do... Um, Cybersecurity analysis is going to cover the industry and provide um, guidance to enterprise teams. I spent uh, 31 years at um, Bell Labs and AT&T, the last half of my career uh, running the the program there as the chief security officer. So I've also been involved in academia, uh, teach at a couple of different universities and um, consult down at the Applied Physics Lab. So I keep pretty busy. Awesome. Thanks both for being here. I'm going to, Ben, I'm going to target the first question to you. And for our podcast listeners, Ben is very humble. It's Ben June. If you want to go check out his full profile and everything here, been a very involved and active part of RSA conference um, for, for several years. So, Ben, the first question coming your way. Uh, you have joined Hugh the past couple of years on our industry expert stage. Um, they've been super popular sessions. Uh, these sessions are listed down in the notes with podcasts for those of you listening who want to check those sessions out. Um, as CEO of HVF Labs, and I did see that that stands for hard, valuable, and fun, which are awesome, solid adjectives, uh, you play an interesting place at the front of the technology development process. Um, As described, your company description, you say you're students of sensors, connectivity, data, and technology-differentiated solutions. So you're fully enmeshed in that that startup culture. For our security listeners here, where does security play in this culture? Is it part of the HV or F of your name, or is it just this this thing that's out there? That's a good question, Britta. I mean, there's there's many different ways that a startup company can view the world, and I think there's basically three models that we have. Uh, the first one is where we're trying to start a business where suitable protection of user data is necessary. In this way, we're kind of no different than any other business, but we have to apply best practice security. We have to make sure that we're doing things properly with respect to regulatory approval. Um, if we're dealing with healthcare data, we have to be HIPAA compliant. 
And if you're an ongoing business that's done this for a couple of years, the incremental cost of you know recertifying yourself the next year is small. Uh, but if you're a small company, there's there's a lot to do. And uh, so some of this is just making sure that we have the same best practices as everybody else. Um, but there's two other ways in which we kind of look at security and risk, and I, I think of it as how we manage risk. One way is to basically look for a reward or a product that reduces risk. Um, for example, a lot of my past career was spent finding ways to better protect keys that get loaded into devices, uh, to look at things like cold storage for keys that you would keep in the central area, to look at ways to um, essentially manage keys that were issued in the organization. And if you could do a better job doing this, you could reduce the risk for your customer and actually sell a product. So that's one. The second one, which I think uh, a number of small companies are also looking at, are ways to measure risk. And so insurance is a great example of this. And, in fact, in this morning's news, there was a data science company called Science, which specialized in helping underwrite and provide data models for cybersecurity. Um, they were actually acquired, and um, they are basically looking at models and ways to assess the likelihood of risk. So, in other words, can I just probe your firewall from a distance and come to some educated choice decisions about how you manage risk and maybe we decide if I want to take on that risk as your insurance company? And, and let me ask you, just kind of following up on, on Ben's point, first let me say uh, I'm one of your biggest fans. I mean, you, you were quite humble in your intro too, but I'd say you've been one of the most influential voices in the security space uh, for the last many years. And, and I've got to ask you, you, know, you had one of the biggest security teams in the world as CISO of AT&T, but you've also helped a lot of other companies as they think about security, especially in these changing times of uh, video cameras getting weaponized against us and botnets and things like that. How do you think a CISO of a big enterprise views security today. What, what, what are you most concerned about, and what do you hear your peers most concerned about? That's a great question. First of all, I guess nowadays it's not something to brag about if you've had influence on the cybersecurity industry. It's <laughs> it is. It's okay. state it's of okay. affairs these days, so better to keep your head down, uh, maybe wait for better times. But I do see better times coming, and I think – there is a difference between what most people are thinking about and what they should be thinking about. And, and you know, let's focus on the latter, you know, what I think people should be focused on. Here, here's what I've seen, having been involved in trying to stop hacking and cyber terrorism and cyber warfare for, for decades now. I think we've had a period where businesses and governments and organizations that are trying to protect the big enterprise have been forced to play something along the lines of a static defense, meaning you put your infrastructure in place, you buy your tools, you provision them off, you test them, you take a look at what you've got, and then you more or less play the game with what you put in place. And the idea that maybe during, a, during an event or during an incident or during any sort of engagement that you would actually make some changes to that are almost unheard of, right? Let's say you want to change out your <laughs> next-generation firewall. To maybe you're not happy with it. Well, you got to go find a new one. You got to, you know, go um, contract with the vendor. You got to get it in the lab. You got to test it. You got to sign a contract. You got to, 
get them in. You had to put provision. It could take months to do that. Imagine a, a football team uh, doing that. Like you want to replace a player, you got to go recruit and sign and find somebody and fly them into the game. It's utterly absurd, you know. But we've had decades of security teams basically playing this static thing. Well. The beauty of this shift to virtualization, which is largely driven by CIOs, I mean, let's not delude ourselves. The virtual data center is not something that security people influence. We can benefit from it, but it reduces costs, you know, reduces cycle time to put new hardware in. But that's good for us because the idea that potentially I can do, like, um, on-demand provisioning of new capability when I think I need it. And, and maybe I might think I need it later this afternoon or tomorrow or next month. Um, the idea that at some point I might be provisioning um, virtual appliances the way I buy books on Amazon. And maybe when I buy an appliance, as I'm checking out, you know, the um, SDN or virtual uh, security vendor would, would say, hey, you know, people who just bought um, – this product from Symantec also like this thing from FireEye running a special today. I mean, there's like all these crazy kinds of scenarios pop up. But to me, that's what we need. It moves you from a static defense to actually being able to run a, a live, real-time uh, strategic defense. So I, I think that's where we're headed. And, and I know it's going to sound funny, but I think it's going to make cybersecurity more fun Right? It, it's sort of like the offense has had all the fun. You, you guys know if you go to DEF CON, there's an energy there, and it's fun, and it's crazy. Um, RSA is probably the only place where we have any darn fun at a conference, but the majority of, of enterprise security meetings are, are pretty drab and pretty bleak. So I'm hopeful, Hugh, that what we're going to see is, is a new era where people can be creative, they can be dynamic, they can reconfigure um, the defense, the way networks, you know, are now reconfigured with um, software-defined tools like in an SD-WAN. So I think it's going to be uh, the next uh, 10 to 20 years are going to be better than the last uh, couple of decades. So this is awesome. There's, there's rays of light out here. It's not the dark clouds and rumbling of, of FUD that, that we've been mired in. Um, I really like that perspective, particularly from a CISO who was, who was in those trenches for so long. So, so flipping that one to you, Ben, you're in that early stage stuff. You're in that innovative drivers. Listening to your description, I was hearing the HVNF being part of security, the, the hard, valuable end fund. You see all of those as pieces of security. Um, do you think security can positively impact this, this innovation, this ray of light that, that Ed's talking about? Well, you know, I think the wonderful thing that you have when you start out at the, you know, a small end of the spectrum is that you usually find yourself with remarkably few legacy issues. Um, we work in a world with tons of legacy issues, and we just sort of call those opportunities. Um, and so then the question is, what do you do with that? And one of the advantages with really engineering of any kind, but I think security is the same way, is that innovative engineering teams are, are actually surprisingly small. I mean, we're looking at something that you want to build. The core of many things I've worked on, and we're you know, built with you know, a dozen or less or maybe two dozen people. Um, it's not even clear that adding more people to designing some of these things is a good idea. And so when you have that, then you might as well start in a small place where you don't have a legacy problem. And, and, and it does look like a lot, a lot of opportunity to us. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we don't get ourselves either. There are large companies that have significant needs. Um, 
these are conservative customers, and, and they should be. They have a lot riding on what's going on, and they, uh, the willingness to take a solution from someone that's new is, is limited. And so um, we work very hard to try to make sure that we're building things that are relevant and that solve extreme problems. Um, we also very much realize that the stuff that we build, uh, security in general, is, is, is weird product to manufacture because the traditional metrics you have for how well you're doing or how well your product stacks up don't really work. Uh, you know, most products in the world are, are sold it's kind of like a car. I can sell it based on efficiency, miles per gallon, or performance, uh, zero to 60 times. And most things that we buy can be rated based on efficiency or performance. And security, you know, it's really a matter of a measurement of robustness. You don't have that. And so as a result, we have to specialize. We have to specialize in these building blocks that we can know and trust, um, or we have to understand a specific problem really better than anybody else and then claim a right to solve that problem for a customer. Let me ask both you guys a question based on that. I mean, and I like your description about you know, we have to be agile. I really like your prediction that the you know, next 20 years are going to be more fun than the last 20, although i got to say I, I've personally enjoyed the last 20. But what do you think about network infrastructure itself and how it might have to change to do this on demand, you know, I provision an additional security control or maybe a novel security control when I need it. How do you think that's going to change just the way that people design networks or the way that the people uh, adopt certain cloud services and will they make different decisions about which cloud services they adopt to accommodate for that, that dynamic security kind of control? Well, let's uh, let's start with the mechanism, and then we can talk about how it's likely to be rolled out. The, the the concept of dynamic reconfiguration or using automation to change uh, network configurations or design that that's not new, right? That's um, and and anybody working in any type of software defined environment uh, knows that that that's that, that's not a, a novel concept. Well, most of the criteria for that are are network issues, like. Uh, selecting links from a branch office is something that a controller would do in an automated way. Or you have some congestion you want to reroute, or you have uh, quality of service or prioritization of different types of applications you want to move things around. Network managers are good at that. But when was the last time you saw, you know, threat feeds affect WAN links? <laughs> Not too much, right? Nobody's yeah, kind yeah. of doing that. And that's going to happen now. You're going to have you know, hey, the Kansas City office is showing uh, evidence of potential malware exploitation, and the network should shift and reconfigure to, to, to prioritize traffic away from that site, right? That's, that's smart, conceptual. It, it seems very doable, and, and it's one of those places where network designers and security designers will come together. And, and I do think that that's inevitable, like we saw early uh, reliability concerns dealt with separately from network, and then they came together. Nobody talks about reliability and networking separately. Ditto quality, ditto dependability. So I think security ultimately will become just a, a factor in the design of this. Okay, so now that we've kind of looked at the way um, that there would be sort of this, this synergy between network designers and security designers, how the mechanism will work, Let's talk about how it's likely to, to roll out. So 
what we're all used to, what I think everybody in the security community is used to, is that when some new capability, some new set of tools, some new ability to run a big sock or whatever emerges, it's always been the big organizations that do it, right? They have big budget, they have big teams, they have uh, big personalities uh, driving those programs. And that's what we're all used to. We've seen big banks and large organizations, DOD, the defense, um, you know, leading the way. But the, the problem now with a lot of the new capability, particularly virtualization, particularly cloud, particularly software-defined capability, um, including uh, SDN, is, is that with compliance activities being what they are, and, and the difficulty of taking, say, government systems through FedRAMP or civilian systems or commercial systems through NIST or the big compliance activities that you have, particularly in banking with the Fed and other kinds of things, once you've done that, the last thing you want to do is have anybody even suggest that you're going to change your architecture. I mean, when you've got reams of paperwork and thousands of pages of, of, of mappings of requirements, you don't want to change. So what happens is when exciting new developments emerge, and we're seeing one now with on-demand provisioning and, and the idea that you can orchestrate policy through distributed cloud. Think Google uh, Beyond Corp is one, one of the more elegant implementations of this. The, the groups that are leading the way are the smaller companies. It's a, the tinier the better. Um, you start a one- or two-person company, boom, in a week you're in business. In a week, in an hour, you could be in business with five or six different cloud workloads supporting your, your little company. So it's flipped on its head, and what we see instead of big companies leading is we see the big companies as laggards, and, and it's not their fault. I, I, you know, if we're going to pick a bad guy, what the heck, once in a while it makes sense to have a bad guy. I kind of pick the audit and compliance community as being a little bit too rigid in their inability to recognize the, the technical advantages, the infrastructure advantages, of shifting to virtual, and, and we need to find a way to make the compliance activities a little bit more nimble. So, Hugh, that's how I think it's going to roll out. I, 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 again, I'm really excited about the, the, the kind of symbiotic relationship between uh, network management and security management. I think those things go together, and threat and other types of things will, will in fact, become factors um, in the way networks are, are dynamically reconfigured. Yeah, and I, you know, I Ed, love if I could, Yeah, go ahead, Ben. Sure, Ed, if I could go back to something you were saying earlier. Uh, it was interesting because when you were talking about the need for sort of segmentation and compartmentalization, uh, my natural assumption is that you were going to promote the same things that I sort of used to like, which is uh, when you separate your network, you kind of add in more watertight compartments. And so you have sort of resilient, uh, uh, you know, you have partitioning. And once you have partitioning, you can use all of the classic tools that we're used to using as, information security professionals. I mean, we have an IDS, we have an IPS, and in today's container loads, we can actually do this on a, even a per-process basis, what we used to do on a per-machine basis. Um, and I was content to kind of stop there. And it, it sounds like you're actually going much further than this. You're saying these new systems give us a new ability to build resiliency and responsiveness in, and I suspect that's what makes it fun for you. Um, yeah. And this is pretty interesting because usually when you think about ability to react, you, you, you have a very limited set of options and you generally assume that you've already given up whatever asset you're trying to protect. So I was wondering if you could talk about how, how do you map 
something which is sort of a, a responsive, forward-thinking security policy uh, with people who sit on assets that are that are valuable. Well, you know, I think what what's happened is that a lot of the security functionality that we manage as a community has been relegated to a lot of passive monitoring that doesn't have any real impact on networks. Um, not always, but for the most part, um, security infrastructures have been overlaid lightly onto real architectures with everybody in IT operations and networking knowing that if you had to turn off all the security systems, don't worry, the network continues to operate. And that's not right. I think the security has to be embedded in the real infrastructure that's driving capacity usage and the way applications are consumed and so on and so forth. So I really do see an intermingling and a tangling of real cybersecurity with real networking and real application development. What that, what that implies is that the way cybersecurity teams are managed and the way uh, organizationally you see, um, you know, CISOs sitting off on one side away from people doing quote-unquote real systems, that has to change. And, and that will take some time because I think there's still some stigma associated with being a CISO. Let's face it, when, when you're a CISO, the organization presumes that you are completely and totally unfit for any other job in the company, that they sort of tolerate <laughs> being there. But name one CISO that you can think of in a major company that had two or three other major executive jobs in the company. Like, have you ever heard of a CISO going from marketing to uh, engineering to running security to running sales? I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but that's how every other executive position in a corporation is managed. You know, once you're an executive, there's a presumption that you could really pretty much run anything, including the company. But the CISOs are viewed as this thing off to the side, and I think that pervades down then to the things you were alluding to, this idea that, you know, a lot of the security work that we do, for the most part, has been pretty inconsequential. And that has to change, and I think that virtualization is going to be the way that we can um, kind of get back into the game and, 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 and be more consequential, be more active in mitigating threats. So, again, I, I hope that's what happens. I think it will. And let me just ask you, just an aside on, on what you just said about that. Do you see, though, that CISO position changing right now and being elevated? Like, I just think about the exposure to the board, some of the material events that have happened over the last two years. And, you know, it's now a regular appearance of the CISO at a board meeting. Are you starting to see? see, I, I don't know, almost like a natural selection of folks that can communicate, have those sort of normal kind of transferable executive skills move into that role, aside from the, some of the changes you're talking about on the network? The answer, unfortunately, is no. And let, let, let me mm. tell you why I say that. First, an analogy. I, w I went off and I, I was digging around looking at org charts. And I found these org charts for the National Park Service. I have no idea why they have oh, a complete wow. compendium of their org charts. Somebody there was probably, like, really weird and just decided to put a bunch of org charts up. But I, I went back and I looked at the personnel department at the, at the Park Service, and here's what I found. In the 20s and 30s, 
You will not find a personnel department anywhere, particularly there. But then as you got into the 50s and 60s, you sort of found it there. And like at General Motors in Alfred Sloan's book, My, My Years at General Motors, he puts all his org charts in that book. And you see personnel departments sort of bubbling up. And then in the 70s, 80s, 90s, it became like an HR department. And now, find me a company in the Fortune 1000 that doesn't have an HR executive reporting directly to the CEO. I think Berkshire Hathaway is probably an example of one that doesn't, but set them aside. Everybody else has an HR executive. So now let's look at cyber. We got all these big attacks. You know, we could, any of us could go through a litany rattling off names of companies that have had big problems. In fact, um, Equifax recently, the, the CEO, the CIO, CISO, all, all fired. I would challenge anyone listening to this podcast to send to me or one, anyone an example of a website that shows an org chart with the CISO listed publicly on a website that, that shows the org chart. I can't find one. I, I, looked, I tried to go through the whole Fortune 500. I got bored after a couple hundred. Couldn't find any evidence oh. on anybody's public uh, website or look, look in the um, uh, annual reports. Look for an org chart showing the CISO. The only place where you find security officers at that elevated rank is in a cybersecurity company where the CISO is, is part of the sales and marketing of the product. So you find it there, but you don't find it in banks. And you know I have experience as a, as a, as a director, as a board member in a, a Fortune 500 bank. And I, I, I know that that CISO position is still viewed the way the personnel department was viewed in 1930. Uh, I, I don't think anybody really honestly takes the position seriously enough now, and that must change. And I guess having some CEOs lose their jobs and scratching their heads saying, gosh, why did I lose my job, and realizing, wow, there's this position over here. I, I just met the guy or gal during this incident. Maybe I should have met him or her, you know, months or years ago. That realization will start to drive change, but unfortunately, I've seen no evidence. You know, Ed, I... I hear what you're saying, but I think I'm actually a little more positive. I, I think when I see things, I, I see a little bit more alignment between when I talk to someone from the board and when I talk to the CISO, when I talk to the front line. It, it, the feeling I have is that uh, it used to be uh, the board said it needed to be secure and the front line was, wasn't sure what they would have approval to buy. And now when there is a product that can actually meet a need, the feeling I have is that it can actually get purchased and it, and it can get integrated, at least better than it used to be. Um, and, and maybe this is a little controversial, but I, I'm not sure that I believe the end game should be having the board involved. Most perils and risks that corporations face get less attention uh, because there are good ways to manage and offset those risks. And I, I think we're seeing – and so I think for the time being, we need to figure out how to elevate the security role in our organizations. But uh, I, I long for a world where this is not a board issue. You know, I would agree with you. What, what, that, that's um, I'm very impressed um, to hear you say that because you're right. Boards are not supposed to be managing. You know, they don't manage businesses. They don't approve budgets. They provide governance and oversight. And you're, you're right. They they shouldn't be involved in the weeds. But let me, let me give you an example of what. Tell me if this makes sense to you. When if if you or I um, are invited to join a board. 
we're invited to join because we have judgment and experience. Like we show up day one, ready to roll, right? You show up, you've got a sharpened pencil, you've had 30, 40 years, whatever it is, you've run businesses, and when the issues start going around the board, you've seen them all before. You don't need to be trained. The problem that you have now is that most board members not only have zero instinct or background or understanding of cyber, they don't even understand technology for the most part. And, and I think that what happens when you have someone who has no instinct around that is that they, they make bad judgment. And, and, and I think, you know, you get this Amazon effect where a company gets Amazoned because the board has no clue that, for example, a bank is really a tech company dealing in ones and zeros that happen to match, you know, money, you know, and they really are running a tech company. You might have a bunch of people sitting around the room who don't even have to turn on their iPad. So I, I think that they're, when that happens, you're right. I don't think they should be managing cybersecurity budget, but I think to make proper judgment where, for example, they understand the issues of attribution, they understand the basics of how IP networks work. They understand the basics of how threat, you know, realizes itself in a network. And, and something I know you know a lot about, um, this idea of risk, you know, managing risk and how do you, it's never going to be zero. Like the fact that they don't have that judgment tells me, and it's going to sound a little harsh, but I think they should self-select off the board. You know, if you, if you don't have that judgment, like there should be social consequences. If Hugh, if you if, if at your board at um, at Symantec, if a, a board member walked in and said, "Hey, what's revenue? Hey, what's income? What 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 do you mean when you guys say uh, balance sheet?" Like there would be clear social consequences to that, right? <laughs> People would be like, "Who is this person? Doesn't understand this stuff." But guess what? You say the same thing about tech or cyber. Like, gosh, I'm not technical. I don't understand any of this stuff. There are zero social consequences at the board level. In fact, at times it's even celebrated. So I think that's the problem. It's a softer problem. It's more that they just don't have the judgment, the background. And I believe there's a lot to be said for social consequences. You know, the stuff that you say at the bre during break over a board meeting is ten times more interesting than the stuff you say during the actual board meeting. And I, I think that has to be a, a factor that drives better board members. But you're right. They shouldn't be involved in the day-to-day -day stuff. That could be a catastrophe. Yeah, so this is this is an interesting conversation, and it does go back, Ben, to your very beginning point of looking at everything. And Ed, you've alluded to it too. It's, it's that risk management lens and, and figuring out you know where we are on that curve of risk management, where we're comfortable. Relating that to so, so Hugh and I have noticed over the last couple years, there's been a slow but steady increase in the number of cyber insurance-related submissions that have come through the call for speakers process. Um, and we actually had a long conversation last year trying to figure out, do, do we feel like we're at a tipping point with this, this cyber insurance conversation and, and how we've defined the tipping point in looking at a, a maturity, if you will, of a conversation is when do we see the end users talking about something versus just the, the vendors, the, the providers of those solutions um, talking about it. And, and you know, to be fair, we haven't read any of the 2018 submissions yet, so this is based on 2017 and before. But, but we've got lot, we've got 
a healthy amount of submissions coming in from solution providers, nothing yet from an end user perspective. So, so Ben, I'll start with you, and then Ed, if you want to pile on, what do you see happening in and around insurance discussions and that cyber exposure of, of organizations? And clearly, that relates to that board conversation that we've been having, the exposure to risk, the acceptance of risk. And do you think, you know, with recent news in and around the Equifax hack, do you think that's going to change any of those perspectives and approaches? Mm. Well, Insurance is a pretty powerful uh, sort of construction of the modern world. It basically means someone who's holding risk, like a wind farm or a factory somewhere, I, I can actually have someone essentially offer to buy that risk from me. Um, and that's what we call an insurance policy uh, because I can only handle so much downside. Um, and it, it, it's a powerful tool, but I don't think we're anywhere near the tipping point yet in terms of this being significant. Uh, and for starters, that the industry is still way, way underinsured. Um, I've read studies that indicate that we only have something like 12% coverage uh, for the insurance needs of our industry. Um, and on top of that, uh, I think almost every insurance policy I'm aware of generally tops out at $10 million. And so we're talking about $10 million that has to go towards breach response, which maybe you can cover, uh, for liability, which you almost certainly can't, and for business continu you know, continuation and stuff like that, which you almost certainly just can't. Um, and so I, I think we are we're at a place where there are a number of companies that are willing to step up and start to offer these products, um, but really not at the level of depth that they can truly change how a company operates. Uh, you know, we're looking at long tail risk, which should be much worse than $10 million. Uh, so the other thing is um, there was something that I've been wanting to have happen for something like 20 years and just hasn't happened. Um, there's this concept that we have of having a corporate certification or having an insurance company um, essentially through its use of how it charges you for your risk change your behavior. So, for example, if you don't wear seatbelts, we'll charge you more money than your premium. And so guess what? You're going to figure out how to have your employees wear seatbelts. Um, you're going to mop the floors better if you uh, are charged a higher premium for not keeping care of your floors. And you want to be in a place where the risks are large and where the insurance company, which is sophisticated about risk because it's holding risk of a lot of companies, is actually going to tell you how to change uh, how you do your job, to change your process. Um, and I think we're, we're still super far away from that. And this is kind of going back to the corporate board thing. I, I want the insurance company to have more say than the corporate board someday, and, and we're, we're still trying to get the corporate board to, to get involved. So we're not quite there yet. Um, now, the numbers are really scary. Uh, I mentioned that we're looking at, like, 12% coverage for the industry. So the way that the insurance industry looks at risk is to declare sort of large or extreme risks. And there's this cool study that came out earlier this year where they looked at two specific industry catastrophes and then priced what might happen if these events occurred. And one of them was basically a multiple-day outage of AWS due to a sort of hacktivist attack. Um, they didn't call AWS in the report, but it's pretty clear what we were talking about. And the estimates of loss were between 4 to $50 billion. Uh, $50 billion was the extreme case. Just to kind of calibrate here, uh, Hurricane Katrina was generally understood to cost $108 billion. So these are massive risks. Um, and the specific situation was a hypothetical bug in a hypervisor, call it Zen, that would take the network down in a, in a hard way. 
Um, there's another scenario where there was a loss of some hacking tools from a fictional government agency, um, and the risks for that were between 10 and $30 billion. And so these are large risks. It's also interesting to note that when an insurance company calls extreme, they call a one-in-200-year risk. So wow. if someone has decided that we may have a seven-day outage, five- to seven-day outage of AWS, and that will happen once in 200 years. Um, now, the service hasn't been running for more than 20, so I don't even know how you quote stuff like this. Um, but it tells you that the numbers are just staggering. And the, the good news is that a lot of the things that we use uh, to measure risk, how we look at data, um, are just getting much better. In, in the old days, you know, well, back, what, five, seven years, Hugh, we were looking at SIEM systems, right? So we look at uh, security event monitoring and responses based on these things. So the dream was to have some sort of gauge on your network that would measure bad stuff and then automatically roll up the windows when you were, you know, driving through some, some, some bad weather. Um, those systems never really, uh, I think, delivered on their promise. And... It's, uh, which is interesting because it was security people trying to help with security. And it turns out now we're running organizations with large logs from Splunk and other systems where we're actually collecting the same kind of information at a more granular level. Um, and IT departments in many cases, not security departments, are actually using this information to respond. They're also using this information to underwrite companies and, and better understand their risk scenarios. And, and I think we're getting to a, a place where we can better actually measure the risk of a company based on the data they're already collecting, um, certify a company in that risk, and actually step up and take even more than $10 million of risk. And so I, I would love to chat with more people uh, on how to make companies like this. It's something that we're thinking about. You know, this is it. I want to chime in. on so First of all, everything Ben said, to totally agree. Um, no, no need to travel through uh, or reiterate the, the points here. But let me, let me make a point from a practical perspective as a, a long-time CISO. I'm going to use a sports analogy here. Imagine you're a football coach and the owner of your football team comes down and says, hey, listen, just in case you run a crappy team and, and we lose every game, I'm going to buy an insurance policy that pays me if you're just absolutely terrible on the field. And the coach says, well, who's paying for it? And the, co and the owner says, don't worry about it. It doesn't come out of your budget. I'm happy to buy it. The head coach is going to go, yeah, do whatever you want. I don't care. But now ask that head coach if it comes out of his budget, like instead of now we go back to cybersecurity, which would you rather do, upgrade your SIM or pay for the insurance policy out of your operating budget as a CISO? I think it changes the nature of that purchase. And what I've seen and what my personal experience is that insurance is paid for by insurance groups and by CFOs, and I, I don't know of a single CISO um, that's had his or her budget docked to cover the cost of a, of a policy. So most of them are going to shrug. But if that changes, if it becomes, well, this is now in a zero sum, you've got to find a way to pay for this policy, I have a feeling most operational-minded CISOs would say, I'd kind of rather hire some engineers and, and build a new SOC and build some new functions then, you know, pay a, uh, an annual premium out of my budget. So we'll see how that happens. All the benefits that Ben laid out, is, those are all correct. It, it is a way of transferring risk. It's, it's a sound financial move. But to date, 
The industry's been propped up by the fact that there isn't a single cybersecurity team that feels an ounce of pain financially from having the policy. So you ask me, um, the only thing I don't like about the insurance process is going through the due diligence because you got a, if you have a big policy, you'll have a team of underwriters you never met from all over the place, and they're going to want to know every single thing about your business to assess risk, and that's the part of CISO will hate. But if you can get through that, then you shrug and say, I don't care if you buy a billion dollars of cyber insurance or buy zero. It doesn't change the way I coach the game. You know, that's a financial decision that's made outside the context of the way you do day-to-day cybersecurity. So we'll see. I think the industry really has been propped up because of, um, of that, that, um, that budgetary issue. Yeah, and I like that sports analogy. You're right. Things really change when it's you that has to then put the bill, especially when that bill can be kind of arbitrary. You know, Ben, you talked about at the beginning how um, how companies are getting better at thinking about underwriting this problem, which is super complicated. We don't have long tails of history. A lot of the breaches are actually unknown, and we haven't seen them. And, you know, I'd be remiss by having both of you guys on the phone without asking you about another hot topic that's been huge this past year. Like Britta said, we haven't looked at the 2018 submissions yet, but I'm sure it's going to be big again this coming year. And it's the possibilities of using blockchain in different ways than in different ways than it is uh, today around cryptocurrency. And Ben, you know, you spent most of your career in the crypto space. I'm curious, what what do you think that what do you think potential exists for blockchain inside the security space with reputation? And is it disruptive or is it another set of buzzwords? So I got to tell you for. 17 of the last 20 years, uh, I had the email address ben at cryptography.com. Yeah, don't use it. I don't, I don't answer that one anymore. But um, we use cryptography to basically build command and control systems. We've had 5,000 years of history of using crypto for this purpose. Um, these were designed to tightly centralize control. They were originally designed for things like the military. Um, and when we deployed crypto in our client systems, they were to make sure that everything that we built would follow the policies that were put in place by the system vendor. Um, and this kind of makes sense. And in the last you know, couple of years, and, and honestly, I would even say this summer, I think the world's impression of practical cryptography has changed. Uh, cryptography, as used in the blockchain and cryptocurrencies, now means decentralized systems, systems that are not controlled by any one specific entity. Um, where math and cryptography are used for consensus. So we don't rely on a government. We don't rely on uh, a leading company necessarily to set a certain policy. Um, and in the case of Bitcoin, just to kind of give some context here, um, they've set up a system where we can actually mine money. We can essentially sift for money by trying to solve mathematically hard problems. And then we can transfer that money from person to person or entity to entity using nothing other than digital signatures. And we had a lot of the building blocks for this for the last 30 years, really. Uh, public key cryptography was invented in 1975. Um, the real innovation was uh, Satoshi Nakamoto's uh, blockchain, uh, which was roughly 2008. And so we've had 10 years of a system where 
people that don't trust each other can reach some degree of consensus um, building what we call, you know, decentralized systems. So we've got something like $72 billion uh, in sort of vapor in uh, the current market cap of Bitcoin is $70 billion. About a billion dollars changes hands per day. Um, and what's cool about these systems is that uh, they essentially are very predictable. We now know that we can run a very large system uh, transferring assets that are very valuable um, in, in, in ways that are actually quite predictable and stable. Um, the, the, the price of Bitcoin may crash, but that's due to sort of customer demand and supply issues, not uh, because of a government edict. Um, and we've seen other systems come in play now. Ethereum allows you to do smart contracts. So if I want to um, bet on the stock price or do other kinds of things that a, a business might need to do, I can do these things in the digital domain. So why is this interesting? It, it, it's interesting, first of all, because we actually have created something that can stand on its own. Um, and we have limited ability to actually directly have any one person control this stuff. So that's interesting. It's also interesting because a lot of friction currently exists for most financial transactions in the world. If I want to move money across borders, I have to change currency. If I want to change currency, I have to involve a lot of people. Um, this is as easy as routing a network packet. And the thing that gets people really excited about these technologies is the ability to do things like financial transactions with little friction, to do things like issue contracts and run businesses with very little of an existing relationship um, between people. So in other words, uh, it doesn't actually matter who my father was or uh, who I did business with yesterday. If I can offer you a contract to deliver something you need, you can actually buy it from me and we can actually transact based on this. And so this is why I think uh, this technology is so interesting. There's a second question you should ask, which is, is this useful today? And what are we going to do with it? And there's a third question that you should ask, which is, what do we need to do about this as information security professionals? Um, the second question, honestly, the jury is still out. There's a bunch of things that are interesting from an application perspective with these things. Um, I'm particularly interested in what I call many-to-many -many transactions, where you might need to do a transaction with someone you've never met before. So I think it's unlikely that I'm going to go to the burger joint down the street and use Bitcoin today when I used dollars yesterday. But it's certainly possible that I will want to store data somewhere in the cloud or I want to use network infrastructure. And that will involve me paying someone I've never met with this form of digital currency that sort of enables the transaction to happen. And those are the applications that I'm most excited about. There are other ones that involve building consensus. So if we have a bunch of companies that want to do deals with each other, generally speaking, we will want to find some way to make sure that we are honestly representing um, accurate history of the transaction. And a lot of the techniques around blockchain are actually quite good for doing that. Um, where my mind is at right now, actually, is how I can help companies that need to potentially transit. Well, it's not a matter of when. Uh, if, it's a matter of when. When companies will transition to having, just like you transition to having a presence on the Internet, you will need to transition to having a presence sort of in this crypto space. Uh, just like you have to manage your private key associated with your company identity and you want to keep that in cold storage, you'll need to manage a set of private keys that are associated with uh, receiving money at your company, uh, maybe voting on what's called a proof-of-stake system. And so a lot of the systems that we've built for doing things like managing keys and making sure that proper processes need to be followed 
now need to be uh, essentially demapped to this new set of uh, security. Uh, there are a number of problems doing that, mostly because cypherpunks are not the same kind of people that signed up to go to auditing class. And so a lot of these systems are missing components that you and I would sort of take for granted. But they're going to come, and we're going to see them. Excellent. Um, this has been a really great conversation. What, what I find interesting, you know, circling back to the beginning where we started, it is that hard and valuable and fun. And, and I think what I've taken away from this huge, remember two years ago we coined a term, inamoible? I, I do remember, yes. It's very difficult to pronounce. Yes, yes. All, uh, it, was, it, it was a dark time, a dark time of reading submissions, and it was it's not a matter of if but when. And there was that, that, that feeling of, uh, hey, we're all going to get hit. The sky is falling. This is a bummer. Let's just, let's just wait. But what I'm hearing from this conversation is, is there's, there's huge opportunity. The, the sun is rising on the horizon and, and this opportunity for technology to drive, to drive business, support business and then the, the communication that needs to happen within organizations. And, and we're really, we're, we're set for a renaissance, if you will. Um, we're going to follow, follow Ed team lead here. We're going to go on the offensive versus the defensive, and um, security is going to make a big difference within organizations. So um, thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. Um, it could go on and on and on. You've given us a lot of things to think about. So Ed and Ben, uh, Hugh and I appreciate you joining us today, and we look forward to you know, continued conversation and engagement with our podcast listeners. Engage with us on social. Uh, let us know what what, what's on your mind, what you're thinking about, and we'll address it in future conversations. Have a great rest of your day. <laughs>